Would you turn with me to Isaiah 51? We're stepping into a maybe a, a less familiar part of Scripture for some of you. I'll be preaching on Isaiah 51, verses 9 to 16, but I'll be reading starting in, in verse 1 just to understand where we are at um, as a bit of a, an introduction maybe so you can know some of my thinking. Uh, four months ago, my wife gave birth to our, our son, Solace. And I, maybe the most prominent feeling is the great love that I have for him. But actually, probably the most pervasive change in my feelings in these four months have, have been more fear. Because when I look on this child who, who can't do anything for himself, and I've been given great responsibility over, there's a great and continuous fear that something might happen to him. And there's only so much I can control. And I know that there are limits to what I can do, but there's still great fear of, what if I could have done more? What if there's something I could have prevented? Or even if I couldn't have prevented it, well, there's just fear something would happen anyway. And knowing that the Lord is sovereign, it doesn't change the, the fear in my heart. And I think that our, our lives are, are often racked by fear. There are great changes around us. There's great possibilities of changes in our own lives at a personal level uh, with your friends and with your family and maybe even at a, a larger cultural level. And there's great fear associated with those things. One of my uh, friends in high school, his dad had a friend. So my friend's dad's friend. That wasn't confusing. Um, and his friend, the, the, the dad's friend, was, was riding a motorcycle down the road. And as he was driving, riding there, he was going through the woods and got attacked and killed by a lion. It was eaten. Now, I should probably should have told you that uh, my friend is from Africa, so this didn't happen in the U.S., if you hadn't guessed that already. <laughs> but this is to illustrate the point that there are a lot of things right now in the U.S. That, that we don't need to be afraid of. We don't need to be afraid of getting attacked and killed by a lion. We don't need to be afraid of many medical things that people in the past used to be afraid of. We have, uh, we have a lot of security around us. But I would also think that if you could compare our fear with those of our ancestors or those living in places where a lot more could go wrong, that die at a much younger age, we're probably equally afraid because our lives are just governed by fear. So I want to turn to this passage because something the reaction we have to fear is that something must be wrong. God must have messed something up or we must be thinking or doing something wrong if, if I, there's something I need to be afraid of. We are afraid of oppression, of, of the fear of man is huge, but I think that we're neglecting something in Scripture. Even as Christians, even though Christ has conquered and risen again, there's something important that we need to see. Peter addresses his, his first letter and, and addresses it to who he calls elect exiles of the dispersion. He refers to them as, as exiles, we, in this New Testament period, in the, 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 the age of Christ reigning but not yet here, we're still exiles. We're not living in glory, escaping from all fear, but we're living under oppression. We're living under things that can make us afraid. And it's not because we've done something wrong, but this is the position that God's put us in. So I, 
realizing that, I, I turn to Isaiah because his ministry was one of, of warning. His ministry was actually to preach the people of Judah into exile, he's told at the beginning. You're going to preach until their eyes uh, become blind and their ears become deaf, and then they're going to be sent away. And this is a hard ministry because he's, he's telling them, you are going to be very afraid. You're going to be under a lot of oppression. There's going to be men who are, who are seeking to, uh, to go up against you and personally attack you. And he, but his job is to prophesy that for them. This is what's going to happen. But then he receives a unique call, and there's a turn in chapter 40. And though he's 100 years out from the actual exile, his prophecies in chapter 40 turn to comfort. Do you know, you probably know the, the opening verses. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And he begins to prophesy into the exile and says, when you're in the exile, this is what God will say to you, which is amazing. This is a hundred years still to come, but God's prophesying, saying, here's the hope that you will have when you're already in exile. And that's the section that we're entering into. And there's two messages that, that God has for his people. One is, is the uniqueness of God, because they're going to live in a polygamous culture. There's all these idols around them, and there's all these people who are worshiping pagans, and they are the ones who are ruling over Israel. They are the ones in charge of God's people. And, it, and the thinking would be, maybe these idols are actually more powerful. These spirits of the Babylonians, maybe they're the ones who are actually in control. So God over and over hits on the uselessness of idols. And he points instead to himself under, under a refrain. He says over and over again, I am he. Basically saying, I am the only one who controls all things. The beginning and the end, the one who saves, I am he. And he hits on a, a second point. And these are referred to as the servant songs. Because he points to one, one figure who he says, this is going to be the vehicle of salvation, my servant. And my servant's going to represent Israel and my servant is going to be the one who brings salvation to Israel. So wait not upon your own strength, but wait upon my servant who's coming. And as the servant is revealed, we find this isn't the conquering king, but this is a suffering servant who's going to come not to, to destroy the Babylonians, but to destroy sin. And not to destroy sin with a sword, but to destroy sin by taking it on himself and suffering the punishment and wrath of God for sin in their place. So he comes not as a conqueror, but as a suffering servant. Now the spot that we're entering is right in between two servant songs. Right after chapter 50 is a, a song um, where the, the servant of the Lord is, is, uh, is being described. And then there's chapter 53, which is the most famous of them, which I'm sure that you know. That he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, in, in between that period, you get a dialogue. God speaks, and then there's a response to God, and then God answers back. So we're, we're going to read this dialogue. And what we see at the, the first eight verses is three promises of the Lord. He's trying to grab their attention. Listen to me. Pay attention. Listen to me. He says those three times, and is giving promises of comfort. So let me read that. Verses 1 to 8. Listen to me. You who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from, from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. 
For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her wastes and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving in the voice of song. And he promises comfort. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out for me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. And there we get God's promise of of righteousness, of salvation to come. And the last one, listen to me. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, for the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. And the third promise is is the, the, the death of the wicked. There will be no wickedness, because there's no, righteous, there's no peace for the righteous while they're still wicked. Now, the section I want to preach on in verses 19, 9 to 16, and we get a response. Um, a man intercedes for God's people and prays for them, and then the Lord responds to him. So let me read the section that we'll be, be looking at. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea away for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies or the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy and where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth, saying to Zion, you are my people. As we look at this passage, I I want to first look at the, the prayer at the beginning. Because... After these three great promises, God calls their attention and promises three things. One person stands up and intercedes for the people and he cries out because his spirit's aroused in him. He says, you're saying all these great things, but I look around me and it's exile. It's oppression. What you're saying, where, where is it? So he prays to the Lord and that's what we see in verses 9 to 11. I want to see, see three things about this prayer. First, do you, do you see the fervency? This is a man addressing God, and how does he speak to him? Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. 
Awake as in days of old. This is a man who's, who's not just sitting there quietly, speaking softly. He's pleading with the Lord. He's crying out to him. For the children out there, if, you're, if your dad stepped on your foot, would you quietly say to him, oh, oh Father, I have a, a question for you. And then wait for him to answer back, yes, what is it? And you say, well, my foot's in great pain because you're stepping on it. No, you'd say, ouch, dad, that hurts. Get off of my foot. You'd cry out to him. And this is what we see with the prayer as well. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. This isn't a lack of respect, but it's because this person's addressing their father. He knows that he can come and he can say something. We're in great pain. We're in oppression. We're in great fear. Awake, where is your strength? You're the one who can change this. This isn't because he doesn't believe the Lord. We actually, the second thing to see is, is that it's because there's great confidence in the Lord. Look at the end, verse 11. The ransom of the Lord shall return. This is no longer a plea. He's just professing his belief. The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Yes, I know that your redemption will come, but I'm praying for it now. Come quickly, Lord. He's praying with, with the utmost confidence. Because like a, a child praying or speaking to his father, he knows that his father will listen to him. He knows that his father cares for him. He knows that his father has the power to act. And that's not in question. So he's, he's praying fervently and he's praying confidently. And this leads to the third thing, which is, is something I want to spend more time on. Is that because he, he knows his father loves him, because he can cry out so fervently to God, he prays with persuasion. He prays with knowledge of who God is. Look at him appeal to the Lord at the end of verse 9. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. He's pointing back saying, I know who you are. As if he's reminding God of his own character, of his own works. Saying, this is who you are. This is what you've done. And he points back to a time. Now, have you, have you been able to see what he's pointing to? What's the, what's the moment that he's pointing back to? Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? What is he pointing to? He's pointing to the exile, or sorry, the exodus. He's pointing to God saving his people from Egypt and then bringing them through the sea. But he's not just saying, look back at what you did to Egypt. He would say that in a sentence. But he describes it in, in more poetic language, and it's for a reason. So I want to look at why. Why does he describe it in this way? He says, look, look back at what you did to Egypt. I know your character. I know your, your power. Where is that now? But he describes it in a, in a different way. Look at the end of verse 9. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? He's using language of mythology. Now, Rahab is, this is not referring to the woman in the story of, of Jericho. This is a, a different name that God actually puts on Egypt. But he pulls this name out of, out of old Canaanite, Babylonian, just pagan mythology. And this character was a, a giant sea monster, a great giant snake that lived in the sea. And he, he places that name on Egypt for a reason. Because who was controlling Egypt? 
It was pagan gods. That's who God made war against when he sent the plagues. He was warring against the great powers of Egypt. Egypt was seen as the most powerful of the nations, not because of its physical might, but because its gods were, seen, were said to be the most powerful. So God takes the most powerful of the, the, the pagan deities and says, Rahab, that's what I'm going to name you. But also, what is Rahab? A giant snake, which is biblical imagery. Who's behind Egypt? Satan's behind Egypt. And where does, where does this snake dwell? When the sea, the, the domain of, of chaos and darkness. For the Israelites, this is, this is all the darkest imagery. But what happened in Egypt? Well, God's, he, he, the prayer is, you're the one who cut Rahab in pieces. Your plagues didn't just strike down Pharaoh, didn't just strike down the firstborn. They cut down the gods of Egypt. You were making war against the gods. And then this, he's looking at the spiritual realities and this, this imagery continues on. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? This is speaking of bringing them through the Red Sea, but he refers to it as the great deep, this creational language. What is the reason for that? Because there's a spiritual truth underneath. It wasn't just that the sea killed Pharaoh, but the sea was the, the place of judgment. The Israelites were brought to safety. They were given life through the sea. And all of Egypt was given death. They were sent to the great deep of Sheol because the sea collapsed over them. Because God brought judgment through the sea. Now all of this is, is pointing to the fact that what's happening underneath, what is the greater prayer? It's not just for a physical restoration. Cure me from the things that I'm afraid of right now or or the things that I can see right in front of me, but he's praying for the spiritual realities underneath. In our fears, are we looking underneath that what are the spiritual realities? Because I think that's often where, where our fear strikes the deepest. When we are, are, are afraid of great cultural change, things are shifting. They don't feel like they were. It's not just that things are shifting, but we're worried, well, are the spirits of the age more powerful than our God? Are they going to be able to, to somehow win the battle out? We know that God is with the church, but somehow perhaps the, the great other principalities of the age are, are going to conquer the church. When we see disease conquering ourselves or someone in our family, the, the worry is not, well, will I, will I die? But will God's promises prevail? Can he bring ultimate healing? We fear death not because this life will cease to exist, but because there may be some doubt of, of what's afterwards. There's something to be mourned about death, even when you are completely assured of the afterlife, but, but fear creeps in when we are not quite assured. We think, well, maybe Christ hasn't fully conquered. Maybe this truth isn't, isn't going to be victorious. The principalities of this age may be stronger than our God. So what is this prayer this prayer is, is toward the spiritual realities underneath. We know that you conquer the greatest powers on earth. We know that you conquer every power behind whatever we see. So Lord, come quickly. Where is your arm of strength? Come and rescue us. Rescue us from the oppressors that we see right in front of us, but rescue us from, from those who are controlling them as well. We, may we not be underneath the, for the, in Isaiah, may we not be underneath the pagan deities of Babylon, and for us, may, may we not be underneath the, 
the pagan deities of the world around us. That's the great prayer that we see here. So I, I want to leave this point with a question of, do our prayers ascend to the Lord in such a way? Do we pray this fervently? Does our fear of oppression of the, the people in front of us, is that turned to a fervent prayer to the Lord? Or do we throw something up quickly because we feel we need to, but we spend most of our attention on something else? And then in our prayers, do, do we address the spiritual realities behind it? Do we look to the Lord to, to be the conqueror? To help us in our fears, but also help us in, in the battle. Because as Paul says, we are not fighting a war against flesh and blood, but against the, the powers and principalities in this age. So may we take up our prayers, as, as he says, with the armor of God, and thus do war against the powers around us. Now we get an interesting dialogue here because in verse 12, God responds. God himself responds. And he begins saying, I, I am he who comforts you. His response is calling attention to himself. He looks at the, the, the fear that the prayer is addressing and says, look at me. I, I am he who comforts you. And then he goes through and he, he, he's going to point to a fear Describe the fear and then point back to himself and say, look at me, address the fear that you have. So the first one, he addresses the, the fear of man, one of perhaps the greatest fears of our life. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies or the son of man who is made like grass? Now, if we're honest, we recognize how powerful this fear is for us. Perhaps when you were in, in high school or, or middle school, you knew how important it was what people thought about you. And you put all this energy into getting that right t-shirt. You needed that specific blue polo shirt. That was what everyone had to wear. And then you spend all of your time trying to get it. And as soon as you get it, well, now things have changed and you need a green shirt. And now you've got to start all over again. And what's driving you? Well, you're afraid of what people are going to think or say about you. But if we're honest, that's not just high school. Because the same thing goes on in, in work. There's always things that are, are, are more valued and less valued and what's cool and what's not cool. And that might be the language of high school, but the reality is still there in the office. And you guys know what I'm talking about. We're driven by the fear of what people think about us. But then how does God describe it? Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Mortal man. In 40 years, that person who's striking you with fear because of what their opinion might be, they're going to be dead. In 40 years, you might be dead. What are, you, what are you afraid about? Even if it was a more serious thing, they're in Babylon. There are people who are actually throwing them in prison, who are beating them. Why are you afraid of this person, though? Because they're going to die. They're only causing you pain. They're, they're dead. They're going to be dead in 40 years. But he continues, of the son of man who is made like grass. Not just will they die, but they're so fickle. Things change so quickly. That person may be making fun of you, but tomorrow he might be your best friend. Because our opinions change so rapidly. One day this thing is valued, and the next day, well, that's not good anymore. Now it changes. Why do, we spend our, why do you spend your life pursuing those sorts of things? Because man is like grass. It blooms one day and it disappears the next day. 
Opinion changes one generation to the next, even within one generation. What's white, what's right, what's wrong, what's valued, what's diminished. Man is fickle. But then look at God. Verse 13. Behold your God. And you have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. Behold your God. And he points to himself and says, but look at me. I made you. I made everything. I'm the maker. And what did he do? I stretched out the heavens. I laid the foundations of the earth. I have done something that has never been changed. As much as man can try, they can't destroy the heavens. As much as man can try, they can't destroy the earth. From the beginning, I set this in place, and it has never been moved. It's permanent. And why is it permanent? Because I am permanent. I'm eternal. I'm unchanging. So man dies. Man changes. God created everything. God is eternal. God never changes. So when you fear man, when you are caused and your eyes are pulled to man, behold your God. He's the one who you should be looking at. And he continues in the second half of that verse, and he points to another fear. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? Now, this might seem like a reasonable fear. Well, yeah, I'm afraid of people who might do me harm. But the way that God frames it is pointing to, do you see the fickleness of oppression? Oppression doesn't rule because it's continually there in charge. If you think of one of those mob movies, the whole, the whole neighborhood is sitting in fear, but it's not because on every street corner there's someone in the mob. It's because once a month they go through and they beat up certain people. And then the whole neighborhood lives in fear. And then they leave. Well, that's how oppression works. And that's what God's pointing to. Where's the wrath of the oppressor? Why do you fear continually all the day because of wrath? Wrath is just a moment. It's fury. It's, it might be fierce, but it doesn't last. And that's what oppression is. Well, they might beat you up. They might throw you in prison, but, but it only lasts so long. Oppression is, is fleeting. They, can't, they can only rule because of the fear that they incite. And then he points to himself. Behold your God. He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. Behold your God because the oppressor might momentarily win you over. But he can't reign forever. God is the one who will have victory. He is not bowed down. He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. And his victory will be eternal. He shall not die and go down to the pit. Because who is the one who's controlling things? God is the one who's controlling things. The oppressor might for a moment have wrath and fury, but God is the one who sets the final victory. That's what his point is. The, the oppressor might be able to come in and destroy your store. He might be able to come in and, and, and hit you. But it's only for a moment. God is the one who, who daily, continually is caring for you. The last part of that verse. Neither shall his bread be lacking. Who's the one who feeds you? The Lord's the one who gives you food. The, the Lord is the one who's constantly at your side. Who's caring for you. God is the one who's always there. 
And he's the one who's going to have final victory. So don't look at the oppressor. Behold your God. This is who your God is. Now there's, there's one third and final fear that he addresses. But he doesn't even describe the fear. Look at verse 15. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. This is addressing the underlying fear that we have. We think we're afraid of the things that we see, but as I said before, we're really afraid of the things underneath. What are the spiritual realities underneath? Who's going to ultimately have victory? Who's controlling the world that we see? And God says that he is. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The sea is the the land of of chaos, the land where the, the dark spirits ruled. But God says here, I'm the one who stirs up the seas. This is where Rahab rules, but I'm the one who allows Rahab to stir the seas up. I control these spirits. Don't even, don't even think about them. Behold your God. Look at me. Because I'm the one who, who holds them in reins, who allows them to stir up seas and then will quiet them and strike them down. Behold your God. When we look at our fears, this is what our response needs to be. When we come in prayer, this is what we're doing. We're looking away from our fears. We're addressing them in prayer, but, but we're overwhelmed with the sight of our Lord. Behold God. Look at him and see how he addresses those fears. Because no fear can stand against the Almighty God. But I want to dig a little deeper with this last verse. Because God actually points out something even more specific. He says, And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth, saying to Zion, you are my people. Now those last three things are actually purposes. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens, to lay the foundations of the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. This is why the Lord has has put his words in this person's mouth. Why he has covered him in the shadow of his hand. Which means, I want us to think about who is this person? Who is this person who's interceding for God's people, who's saying this prayer? And if we had been reading through the greater section, it would be very clear that this is actually the servant of the Lord the great figure that God has been pointing to, saying, this is who I will bring my salvation through. Turn back a couple of, chap- a couple of pages to chapter 49. The heading will tell you that this is the servant of the Lord. And in this song, he's, the servant of the Lord is actually the one singing it. Starting in verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar, The Lord has called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my my mouth like a sharp sword, and in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, and in his quiver, he hid me away. He said to me, you are my servant. Did that sound familiar? He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. So then when we go back to Isaiah 51, God is answering the prayer and tells the person who's praying, 
I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand. God is, is speaking to the person praying, who's interceding for the, all of the people of Israel, standing in their place, and says, Jesus, I've put my words in your mouth. I've covered you with the shadow of my hand. What we see is that Christ is the one who is praying for his people in verses 9 to 11. He's the one who, who sees their anguish and then cries out to the Father and says, come, come quickly, where is the arm of your strength? And we see that in his ministry. He approaches Jerusalem and says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, that you would come to me and be comforted, right? That I would wrap my wings around you and protect you. Jesus cries out for the people of Israel to the Father and cries for their comfort. Do you see here the, the humanity of Jesus? This is the God-man. He's fully man. And we see him look at the, the, the oppression, the fear of his people, and he's driven to cry out to the Lord, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. This is Jesus crying for his people. He's the one who, who identifies with his people. He's the one who in his prayer is not praying distantly. Oh, would you help them? But would you help us? Because he's the one who's standing in for Israel. This is helpful to recognize because when we are praying, we're not just praying for ourselves. Christ is praying for us. Christ is with us in our fear. He's with us in our oppression. And his prayers are not distant. Would you help that person? But he comes alongside us and says, Father, help us. He feels our hurt and he prays that to the Father. Look at Christ in all of his beautiful humanity. The, the, the God-man who, who, though being God, came down to take on the flesh of man, to identify with us. And why did he do that? Because not just so that he could say words along with us, but that he could actually save us that he could actually do something because he's not just a man, he's God. What is the purpose? God has put words in his mouth and covered him with the shadow of his hand to establish the heavens, to lay the foundations of the earth and to say to Zion, you are my people. God has lifted up Christ as, as the highest of all creation, the highest of all men, because in Christ he will establish the heavens. He's going to lay the foundations of the earth. But, but most importantly, not just new creation, but he's going to bring about a new people. Christ will look on the church and say, you are my people. So when, when we feel afflicted, when we're under oppression, we look to God. But we don't look at a God that we can't see, that we can't know because he's never shown his face. We look to a God who has become man. We look to God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, who sympathized with our, all of our afflictions and has taken on all of our sin and then taken on the wrath of God for that. In our fear, we behold God in Christ Jesus. So, this, this sermon ends saying, not behold God, but behold the man. Behold the God-man. In him we find comfort, and in him we find 
all of our salvation. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. O Lord, you are great. You are greater than all of our fears. You are greater than all of the things which incite our fears. And Father, we, we do pray to you that we often turn away. We often turn away from, from looking at you because the things of which we are afraid consume our vision. They fill our heart with worries and our hearts stray. But Lord, would you, by your spirit, lift up our hearts, lift up our eyes to behold you. And will we find comfort knowing that you are not a distant God, but in beholding you, we see you in Christ Jesus, the man who has come to relieve of us of our sins, to free us from all of our fears that will bring about new creation, the redemption of heaven and earth, and also the redemption of your people, that your victory is assured, that the ransom of the Lord will return, and we will come to Zion, the heavenly Mount Zion, with singing, with everlasting joy, with gladness and joy, and sighing and sorrow will be no more. Lord, we praise you and thank you for this great salvation which you have given us, and may we honor you through the Spirit with the thanksgiving that we give. Amen.